Trauma can affect us in one sudden awful incident, or it can build up bit by bit over years of repeated pain and suffering. Trauma can be passed down through the generations. It can affect societies and communities, as well as individuals. How can we find ways to heal ourselves, each other, and society? How do we emerge from the grip of past trauma and discover joy and hope again? Trauma specialist Lula Bentz joins us here on the Anxiety Advantage to talk about her work helping those affected by PTSD, addiction, psychosis, and eating disorders to heal and thrive. This is the Anxiety Advantage podcast. The theme for this season two is courage. I explore with my guests how anxiety may be an opportunity to draw on inner resources we never thought we had in order to live our most fulfilled lives. Doing something scary in spite of our anxiety is surely what courage is all about. So, in this season two, we ask, is anxiety calling us to become our most courageous selves? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster, and perhaps I might also introduce myself as an anxious person. But I wonder, what would it be like to reframe that idea of myself and instead think of myself as a courageous person? I hope you will join me on this exploration and perhaps also see what that feels like for you to think of yourself for a change as someone who is courageous. I'm joined today by Lou Lebentz, who is a therapist, trauma specialist and speaker. She has worked on addiction programs at the Priory Hospital and has a private practice dealing with PTSD, anxiety disorders, psychosis and eating disorders. She has also given a TEDx talk. Lula Bentz, you work with people who have experienced trauma and anxiety, but specifically, I'd like to start to, by talking about people who are struggling with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know that many of us use the phrase quite lightly, but it's actually a very serious condition. Can you tell us how this condition develops for some people and what that means for someone who's trying to cope with it? Well, I think that there are lots of different manifestations of trauma. And I also want to mention that there is PTSD, but there's also a lesser known condition called complex PTSD. So I would say really that I work far more with complex PTSD than I do with PTSD. So PTSD is, it develops following a single incident. It used to be called in the old days shell shock when people would come back from war. And then it later became known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Although we are at the point of trying to drop the disorder label at the end of it. And PTSD is normally following a single trauma or a single incident. And you have visual flashbacks or bodily flashbacks, or you avoid triggers, or you 
might have nightmares or sleep disturbance or you might be hypervigilant or paranoid maybe about your surrounding. And sometimes something called dissociation occurs, which is where we leave the body or we try and disconnect or dissociate from ourselves. And along with PTSD, it can often be anxiety or depression or even self-destructive behavior or drinking or trying to medicate it. And then that single incident, but many of my clients don't have single incident trauma. They might have a one-off trauma latterly or in later life that happens and then they start to get symptoms. But very often people have had more than one traumatic experience. And for many people, it was a trauma um, and experiences collective trauma. So with complex PTSD, they have similar or the triggers and the sleep disturbances and the dissociation and the hypervigilance, et cetera, and the flashbacks, but they will have more difficulty with regulating their emotions or they will have more feelings of hopelessness or powerlessness or they might have a negative self-view or feel shameful about themselves. So there are lots of different elements of trauma and PTSD is one of them, but also complex PTSD is another. And so is things like developmental trauma, which is where maybe in growing up, we haven't felt very soothed or looked after or cared for or well-regulated by our primary caregivers. And later on, if we don't have that early soothing and regulating and attachment to say, we then develop problems with regulating and soothing our own selves later on. So that that's to decipher those two. So the things that they have in common are these physical symptoms that are very distressing and thought processes that keep you awake, that keep you hypervigilant. And can this happen to anyone or is, is there like a predisposition to it? It can happen to anyone. Um, and the predisposition is for any trauma to become PTSD or complex PTSD. We know that if you have a supportive community and people around you at the time of the trauma, you are far less likely to develop symptoms later on. It's how it's dealt with at the time. And also, if you have a background of what we in the trade call a secure attachment, which is where you felt in your growing up years that you were soothed and loved and worthy and looked after and there weren't any disruptions in your system, then you are much less likely to develop the symptoms of PTSD or complex PTSD or anxiety or depression later on. And what counts as trauma 
what is the range of the events that can, you know, affect people? Well, I think lots of people think trauma is a one-off big incident, is a PTSD event. And I think a lot of people don't realize or recognize perhaps that trauma is very wide as a word and maybe too wide because in essence, another word for trauma could be something like chronic stress. So we do get traumatized by big incidents, by wars or, or car accidents or rape or abuse or tsunamis. Those are all big T traumas, but we also get traumatized in relationship. And another aspect of trauma, as I mentioned, is are we soothed? Are we held? Are we, uh, are our feelings made to be important as we're growing up? How do we feel in our family of origin? Because very often we have developmental attachment trauma where we're not feeling safe. Um, we have bullying. We have what we grow up in and the soup, if you like, the environment that we grow up in. And so that can often include things like racism or sexism or classism or, or homophobia or something that or poverty. Those are all elements of what we call collective trauma. And then there is the intergenerational trauma. So that's our grandparents and our parents' stories and really how much work they've done on their own narrative of their own trauma history. Because what they don't work through or metabolize, unfortunately, we now believe often ends up moving down the generations into the younger. So that is another element of trauma. So what comes to mind is stories from my own family background in that my, several generations ago, my ancestors escaped from China. I say escaped, but you know, they, they, they had to escape famine and poverty and they made a new life in Malaya as it then was. Then at the next generation, so for them, it was about not having enough food. My grandmother tells the story, told the story of for her birthday, she got a boiled egg and she would hold it the whole day because that was the big food that she would have. And she felt guilty that the rest of the family didn't have this egg. And then she would eat it at the very last moment and then it was gone. Yeah. And so for, I think the Chinese uh, diaspora, we, we, we enjoy our food and we love it. And there's a celebration around it. But I think there is also a sense of when's the next meal coming from? You know, are we going to, to, to lose our houses, our, our homes, our families because of some terrible disaster? Yeah. And then the generation before me, my mother's generation, they grew up in the war, whether in Malaya or in, 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 in the West because of the, the, it was a world war. And so for them, the world feels an unsafe place. And I guess that is also passed on down to the next generation. It is, and it's passed on down in terms of beliefs, but it's also passed on down through the nervous system and how well regulated we are and how we are able to manage our own nervous system. And 
very often when I'm asking clients and I'm looking at trauma, I'm looking at these collective or intergenerational beliefs around the world is or people are. And then that leads, of course, to all of the identity statements that we make about ourselves, which is I am. And I am safe is very different to I am unsafe. And I'm living in an unsafe world where there is scarcity and not enough. And I might have to fight for something. That says a very different thing to my nervous system. So one, that nervous system continues to be vigilant because the nervous system is thinking, oh my God, this is a terrifying situation. I've got to fight for my life. Even though in, in, in the present moment, you are safe. Yes. So our nervous system really works on what's happened to us historically. And dare I say that might even be intergener- intergenerationally because genetically some some things are passed down and we're not quite sure whether that's dna or or how it's expressed yet but but yes and our nervous system does one of three things really it's either in what we call ventral vagal which is nice and calm and relaxed and at flow and we're feeling okay or it starts to go into sympathetic arousal. And when we're in sympathetic arousal, we're starting to go into that fight or flight. So either internally or externally, we're having cues of some sort of danger. So we're already starting to withdraw and step back. And for me, that is much more of an anxiety presentation because The next run on our nervous system really is down the end of the ladder in what we call dorsal vagal collapse. So those of us that are sympathetically activated are in essence in hypervigilance or hyper arousal or fight flight. And on the evolutionary pathway, if that doesn't work for us and we're not able to get out of there, the next thing that we have or choice is that we freeze. And then after we freeze, the survival mechanism is to flop or to, yeah, play dead, play possum. And that's called hypoarousal. And what the nervous system tends to do sometimes is it gets a bit stuck in either one of them. So my depressed clients might be more in hypoarousal and my more anxiety-driven clients are in more of their hyper arousal. And the job really is to get somebody back up to ventral because their system is operating through historical eyes. Because in the present moment, in this moment, most of the time, most of the time, we're living in a rather crazy world sometimes, but most of the time we're safe. Now, you mentioned earlier a a couple of times being soothed at the point when the trauma happens. You were saying if we have not been soothed and made to feel safe at that time, then the the fight or flight is almost sort of in, it kind of gets embedded. It doesn't get a chance to be released. So I think the nervous system 
operates like a stacking procedure. So I think it, it, we can take one thing and then another thing and then another. And then after time, it's just too much for the nervous system to take. And we have to look at it. We have to have the courage to look at it because it is an internal journey that we need to make with the nervous system. So soothing is really about being able to manage and tolerate the emotions that are within our body. And us human beings really bad at it. We're not good. We like the good feelings. We don't like the bad feelings. And I say bad, I don't like that word. But the negative feelings like fear or sadness or guilt or shame are not very pleasurable. So normally when we're kids, what happens is we have a really well regulated, and that means a, a mother or a, a parent or a primary caregiver who's really good with their own emotions. So when we get emotional, they teach us how to come back into our window of tolerance, to go back up the ladder. So it's there, there. You're okay, darling. I'm with you. You're safe. Everything's just breathe. Just allow the emotion to come up. It's okay. I'm with you. You're not on your own. And it teaches us this ability, which we don't have as children, to soothe, to learn how to soothe ourselves, to learn how to manage the distress within our own system. And if we don't have that, then we, we don't learn ways to tolerate our own emotions. We use other strategies or we just don't go towards them or we learn to shut them down. So the job is essentially to slowly by slowly learn how to regulate and come back into our body and stay little by little with those bodily sensations. And I always like to use the Coca-Cola analogy. You know, our nervous systems, really, most of them are like a Coca-Cola bottle that's been shaken up, you know, and all the fears is in there, really. And it's wanting to come out. The body is actually our friend and it really wants to process this stuff because it's cortisol and adrenaline that's got stuck in the system. And it might have got stuck in the system at that experience that happened at 19, or it might have got stuck in the, the system from the experience at 19, and then the experience at 14, and then the experience eight. And all of these times, we haven't really had somebody there to help us go with the waves, go with the fizz, and very gently, little bit by little bit by little bit, open the lid and start to let the fizz out. And that's essentially what we need to do. And we can do that at any point in our lives. That's such a beautiful and fun analogy that we are, I can just picture that. And I also am sort of responding to what you've just said, because it does take courage to admit, oh gosh, I, I'm really not handling it here. Because Particularly at when, when we are now adults and perhaps we have families of our own and, or, you know, we have jobs and things and we have to be seen to be competent and strong. And, and I'm very good and I have been very good at, at that. And the other day I, I was reflecting that 
because I was writing one of my, my episodes called The Anxiety Advantage and writing about how I would get very angry and I would just put on this armor and you, nobody could get near me. And I, I would, any little thing, I would just blow up and just reflecting on how I've, my, my journey from, from there, you know, over the years. And actually now, if I have a problem, I, let's say with my partner, I'll, I'll sort of say, oh, actually, you know, can we have a chat? And I'll talk about it. And then emotion will come up and I will have tears. That's fine. And that's not so scary. And it was interesting to think that, you know, many years ago, I was scared of having tears, scared of fe- feel- showing my vulnerability and actually scared of feeling that feeling of scaredness <laughs> or, or discomfort. But actually by not taking the, uh, not having the courage to step into that vulnerable place, it's really ironic. Actually, it built up and built up and exploded like the Coke bottle rather than opening it slowly. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say or ask you is in terms of courage, because this is the theme of season two, different aspects of courage around facing and dealing with anxiety and trauma. How does one find the courage in the first place to look at that Coke bottle and go, I think I need to open it, but slowly, but oh, I don't want to. How do we bridge that gap? How do we go and find help? I think we need to recognize that most of us can't self-regulate our own emotions very well because we haven't been taught. And that's also not what society says, especially the corporate world, as you so rightly say, it's not okay to cry at work, but it's okay to be angry. And anger is often used as the push away emotion, as the defenses, as the keep away from me. When underneath that anger, very often there is a part of us that is feeling sad or lonely or upset. And we need to be able to show that and be able to, to let it out. So I think co-regulation always comes before self-regulation. And that means sometimes much of my job is about teaching people how to come back into their body and their emotions gradually and ride the waves whilst they've got me or somebody like me as the external regulator. Because really a therapist or a coach and a mother or a parent's job is to be that external neuropsychobiological regulator of the child or the infant or even the teenager's link between their mind and body and how they manage to stay with that. So I would always say, if it's too scary to get into the water, because it is like going back in the water yourself and you need some armbands or a rubber ring or some flippers, use other people that can swim that aren't scared of the sea or have been on their own emotional journey that are very open with their own feelings themselves because they will help you start to self-regulate. And it's a bit like dipping your toe in the water and then your ankle and then your knee. You never take somebody back 
with any level of trauma or even anxiety or depression and go, right, you're off the edge of the boat. Go on, off you go now. Swim, <laughs> swim. It's a very gradual process. And I think people think that they're going to have to deal with everything all at once. And you don't. You deal it with it like the Coca-Cola analogy, tiny fizz by tiny fizz by tiny fizz. So your system gets used to it. I really like that sense of using the, the, the swimming analogy because I'm thinking of myself as I was many years ago, where if I heard you say, oh, I need to go to a therapist to help with my anger, I'd be folding my arms against my chest and I'd be going, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to be fixed. And that's that defense mechanism coming up. But when one thinks of it as a skill, learning a skill like swimming to handle what is going on, it takes away that sense of, of well, you need to be fixed. And that I think many people have a, a, an idea that therapy is about fixing people. And for me, I have been in therapy over different periods of my life when there's been difficulties that I've had to deal with. It helped me come out. It helped me with difficult periods in my work career. And it helped me through the relationship breakup. And I'm at the other side and, um, more having had someone exactly as you say, helping me and teaching me the skills of handling the trauma of a relationship bracket, the trauma of a difficult career situation, the trauma of, well, who am I? Uh, am I gay? Am I not gay? What are the consequences? But it took, it took courage to, to do that. And it's quite difficult to say, well, you know, I, I had courage. But I, I guess it's a fact, you know, we all take steps that are scary and then that gives us new opportunities in life. And it is, and I agree with you, it is very courageous to go and see a therapist or a coach or it's courageous to see anybody and let anybody in to your, in inverted commas, mental health journey because it's fine to see a personal trainer. It's fine to see a nutritionist. It's fine to see other people who are helping your mind body continuum on some level, but it's not okay if it's mental health. Somehow we have this judgment or stigma about it. And really you're right. It's all about skills building. It's all about. Uh, exercises to help you get to know and regulate yourself. And I think that almost everybody should have some form of mental health helper because we need to talk about things. We need to be honest. There's things that we don't recognize within ourselves that another person can really kindly point out. And we're not given the skills when we're young. And this is something I would really dearly love to change one day. We're not taught how to manage ourselves. We're not taught anything about how we operate or how we work or really how our mental health works. And we're not taught about the mind-body link and how they operate together. And if we could teach all of that in schools and give people the skills then that would be a great place to start much earlier on because I don't believe anybody's broken. And I certainly 
do not believe that therapists fix people. No way. I'm not really into the word fix, but I, I definitely think that good therapy and good coaching is about being with a journey on a journey with somebody as they ride the waves and as they get back into the boat and are courageous to carry on their journey. We're the kind of dolphin swimming alongside, really. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Everybody needs a dolphin in their life. Oh, they do. Because we're not doing it for people, are we? We're doing it with. And help that shine, shine a light, really, on, on some areas that feel pretty scary and spooky to all of us at points in our lives that we don't want to go towards. Now, may I ask about your own journey? You've been quite open about saying that you've experienced mental health issues, addiction, and childhood trauma. Yeah. Uh, could you share your story and in particular your road to recovery? Yes, I won't share all of it because people will be here for the next three hours having to. <laughs> but the highlights, the highlights of my story are I was incredibly fortunate and this is tongue in cheek, but it's really not that at 25, I, I was sectioned with psychosis. And that was my first wake up call, really. And I started to get very interested in 25 in the, in the mind and what had happened to me. And I had another wake up call at about 33 up a mountain in Italy, nursing an al alcoholic stepfather. And that again sent me off on a different path into trying to put down my addictions, look at my internal journey. And at 33, 4, I started training in NLP and hypnotherapy, etc. And I became sober. I started doing the inner journey. And I started to recognize that I don't, I recognized I had psychosis and I recognized that I had addiction. I hadn't yet realized that all of that had happened because of childhood trauma. So I got to about 35, 36, 37, and this trauma word started coming towards me. And I found something called the ACE study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. And I did the ACE study, and it's a series of questions out of 10 that you score. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm a six. Wow, that means I've got trauma. And it was the first time, really, that I'd recognized some of the experience of, you know, childhood abuse, sadly, sexual abuse and rape and other things that had happened in my life were actually trauma. And so I went down the trauma journey, if you like, full on, and I did my own trauma healing and EMDR. And I started to recognize how for me, trauma or chronic stress or a dysregulated nervous system do underpin many of the issues that we're then struggling with later on in life. and. 
So I'm on this mission, I suppose now, Yang Mei, to, to psychoeducate more people that have presenting problems that usually we need to go back to the cause. We need to go back to where that originated and what the beliefs were that originated around that at the time. And I, I recognized in my childhood, I had learned or a part of me had learned some pretty awful beliefs about who I was in the world. And they really became the compass that I lived by. And so a lot of my journey was about slowly and gradually starting to change those beliefs and learning to let the fizz up, you know, healer, heal thyself. And quite a lot of shaking and crying and trembling and, you know, journeying work to get to a point where I could be more in my ventral vagal at the top and my adult and my level of flow without feeling quite so anxious or depressed or dysregulated or even swinging from hyper arousal, you know, what the one moment and anxious. I mean, I had terrible fears. And as you know, we met years ago when, when we did our TEDx talks, I couldn't speak in public for 20 years. I couldn't even speak in a room with three people. Quite frankly, I was terrified. So bit by bit, I worked through all of those. And yeah, I'm passionate that anybody can recover whatever their history and whatever they've been through really, because the nervous system and our, and ourselves, we do want to be regulated. We do want to be in homeostasis and parts of us are really just showing up looking for release, if you like. There's quite an amazing, powerful story. And I'm, I, I'm slightly at a loss for words because of you know, what you've just shared and even in a nutshell. And it must have taken a lot of courage for you to take that journey and to face all those feelings and distresses, which you, you know, now looking back, you can put into a nutshell and just say in a few words. But at the time, what kept you going? I take a deep breath in because sometimes I hesitate to tell this part of the story and it always comes up and I, I often think, should I be sharing this or should I not? But I was a very lucky psychotic in a lot of ways in that my delusions of grand, grandeur and kind of having made it and putting the buzz back into Britain and everything else that I thought what, what, before I was sectioned. One part of that journey was very inspiring for me. And, and it was me standing on a stage with Oprah Winfrey and the Dalai Lama. And I mean, it sounds absolutely saying it still, but for me, it was like this guiding light because as a 25 year old psychotic girl, I absolutely loathed myself. I mean, I, the self-hatred was so great that standing on a stage with anybody was quite frankly laughable. And so I think that vision, that mad, crazy vision 
has somehow been like a North Star for me. And it's kept me going through all the battles and all the work. It kept me going through cancer, ovarian cancer a few years ago, just holding on to, you know, there's got to be something strong enough to pull us forward. And even if, even if it's symbolic, that symbol, that metaphor, that experience of it's not about standing in stage without being the Dalai Lama, but it's the symbolism of if only a part of me could believe I might potentially one day even be good enough to do that. I mean, that would just be phenomenal. So my, my kind of understanding of that, and I'm no psychologist or therapist, but as a writer that I understand metaphors and, and so on. And what comes to mind is the phrase, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And it's almost like whatever situation you were in, the people that were around you at that time really wanted to batter the life out of you, batter the vibrancy and vitality out of you, and make you feel horrible and little and the smallest you could possibly be. But there was a human spirit, a spark inside you that was like, no, I have value. I have equal value as the Dalai Lama and Oprah Winfrey. And that part of you came out into the foreground and acted as your guiding light. And in a way, we all have as much value as Dal the Dalai Lama and Oprah yeah. Winfrey. I think we yeah. have to say that. Yeah. You know, they're not special. No, no. But the, but the, and I agree with you, but I think the funny thing is, is that we live in a world where there are these levels and hierarchies. And part of our journey, I think, is about recognizing that we're all equal, that we're all equal, whatever we have or do or are, every single human being is equal. And I was just very lucky that it gave me a good enough reason to do the work. And, and I would say to anybody listening, gosh, if you get a good enough reason or a dream or a vision or anything, even about the next few steps, cling on to that for dear life, because I do think that that can be a guiding force. What is emerging, I think, as I've been speaking to many of my guests, on the Anxiety Advantage podcast and just self, you know, reflecting on my life and looking at all the different people out there. Let's take Oprah Winfrey. She experienced sexual abuse and rape and the Dalai Lama. He was as a young child taken away from his family. And okay, he was treated as the Dalai Lama, but that had to have some kind of trauma in itself. Absolutely. People may not talk about it, but I, I'm sure that it's there, but they have dedicated their life to helping others. And, and you have as well. You, you are not just kind of, Oh yeah, I'm fine now, but you have a mission to help others who have experienced trauma themselves. And I think for me, with my, this anxiety advantage podcast and my creative work, my theater show, Bound Blues and my, my other work, I have been able to kind of push forward through my self-doubt, with who am I to do this? Who am I to write this book? Who am I to stand on the stage? By thinking, well, actually, this is for others. This podcast is for other people who have experienced anxiety in their lives, and we can help each other and work together. 
And I'm so excited and gratified when I speak to people who have listened to the podcast or just in conversation when I've mentioned the podcast, because everybody suddenly feels it's like they've got permission to say, oh, actually, I, 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 I have anxiety too. And the, when I see the relief on their faces or the kind of, oh, okay, it's okay to talk about it, yeah. then actually, you know, that in itself is reward enough for me. It is wonderful. And the fact that you are talking about what clearly I would have thought 95% of us have, if not more, at various points. And, and we have it across context. So we might not be anxious in that context, context, but in another context, we are. So I think it's very much the human condition. And we're living in a world that is quite anxiety provoking as it is with all that's going on and the constant news and media that we're bombarded with. But I do agree with you that if we are doing something for the greater community or a cause or for other people, it gives us more courage than if we were doing it just for ourselves because then there's a mission and then there's helping others. And sometimes I think we can get out of our own way better if we're doing it for somebody else rather than ourselves. And in terms of the those probably hundreds and possibly even thousands of people that you've worked with through surfing alongside them, being the dolphin in their in their journey, you must have seen quite a, a range of courageous people. Would you have any uh, that come to mind of how courage has shown up in your clients' lives? I think everything is about courage. I think everything is about bravery because really when we are turning inwards and with anxiety or depression or mental health or psychosis or addiction or trauma or any of it, we are doing the inner journey. And it feels very dark, very deep, very scary and monumental for most people. It is the archetypal hero's journey to do this work. We are going through the trials and the tribulations. We're slaying the dragons, but we go through the cave or the belly of the whale and we come out the other side. And, you know, that's resilience. That's where we get even more courage. That's really what all of us are doing on a daily basis. And it's that turning towards just being courageous enough to take those first steps. My guest today was Lula Bentz. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page, where there are also photos and credits. Go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to The Anxiety Advantage. There are other episodes now available in this season too, all about anxiety and courage. You can hear about anxiety, breakups and makeups with comedian Rosie Wilby, or reflect on anxiety, women and diversity in the workplace with leadership coach Jenny Garrett, OBE. 
And you can also listen to discussions with a wide range of guests about how to transform anxiety into a friend and ally in the eight episodes of season one, also currently available, plus a bonus ninth episode. These podcasts share my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. I am not an expert and have no medical or counselling qualifications. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. New episodes will then drop into your pod listening app as soon as they are published. Also, if you have particularly enjoyed this episode or the podcast generally, I hope you will leave me a lovely review on your podcast app or simply give the podcast a positive star rating. That will tell the algorithm elves that this is a podcast worth listening to and hopefully that will help other anxious or courageous people find the anxiety advantage. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is tigerspirit.co.uk and then click through to The Anxiety Advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I'm at tigerspirituk. Or you can simply Google the podcast The Anxiety Advantage and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.